This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Cam Edwards with you once again. And um, all right, so let's talk about Kevin Williamson's uh, piece at National Review. I I just want to quote um, a little bit from this piece, which he basically laid out the case uh, that, uh, you know what, these small towns, these dying towns, Appalachia, Working class uh, communities that uh, are on hard times and have seen these manufacturing jobs dry up. And now we've got, you know, the obesity epidemic, the heroin epidemic. Uh, Life's pretty crummy for uh, people there. Kevin says, you know, look, they brought it on themselves. He says, quote, the truth about these dysfunctional downscale communities is that they deserve to die. Economically, they are negative assets. Morally, they are indefensible. Forget all your cheap theatrical Bruce Springsteen crap. Forget your sanctimony about struggling Rust Belt factory towns and your conspiracy theories about the wily Orientals stealing our jobs. Forget your goddamn gypsum, and if he has a problem with that, forget Ed Burke, too. The white American underclass is enthralled to a vicious, selfish culture whose main products are misery and used heroin needles. Donald Trump's speeches make them feel good. So does OxyContin. What they need isn't analgesics, literal or political. They need real opportunity, which means that they need real change, which means that they need U-Haul. Now, I realize that Kevin's not necessarily talking about rural America, uh, but he's talking about those small towns. um, And Virginia has some of those small towns. You know, I saw a story. um, Roanoke isn't too far away from us here in Farmville. It's about two hours or so. Roanoke used to be a huge factory town, huge manufacturing town. I was watching Salvage Dogs the other night on the DIY network, and they were in a old nylon factory that they were getting ready to, I think, maybe turn into loft apartments. The, uh, and they just kind of mentioned casually that at one point, this nylon factory had employed 5,000 people. In Roanoke, Virginia. And the day after I watched that episode, I saw a news story about uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe heading to Roanoke uh, to announce a major new economic uh, boost to the community. Uh, An Oregon brewery is setting up their uh, East Coast factory uh, and distribution plant. And it was between, I think, Roanoke and Asheville, North Carolina. It looks like Roanoke got it. So it's going to be about 100 jobs uh, for Roanoke, which is, which is good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. I'm glad that the jobs are coming there. But you think about what, what one factory used to employ there in Roanoke, 5,000 people. Uh, and now you've got a major new operation coming in. It's going to employ 100. And oh, yeah, at the same time, the uh, railroad in town, I think it's the Norfolk and Southern, uh, announced 500 more job cuts. So congratulations, Roanoke. But uh, you see the uh, the crunch that these small towns 
are in, and, and small cities even. I, I wouldn't even say that Roanoke is a small town. Roanoke is a small city. Should they dry up, die up? Should everybody hop in a U-Haul? Where should they go? I, I guess that's my question is where should they go? Because they don't want to go to San Francisco. They don't want to go up to northern Virginia where they might get a, a job, uh, maybe in a service industry, and not be able to afford to pay rent uh, anywhere close to inside the Beltway. So what, you drive an hour, an hour and a half? I mean, there were folks, when, when I lived in Northern Virginia, I heard about uh, folks who lived in West Virginia uh, who would drive in every day, two-hour commute to go to work at the uh, college, not as professor's uh, or things of that nature, but they were, you know, they were the groundskeepers. They were the uh, folks who were serving in the cafeterias, driving two hours each way. And it's not because, you, you know, Kevin's right. There are jobs there. There's not an affordable place to live. Uh, now, we could talk again about this being the result of the blue uh, policies. You can look at what's going on in San Francisco where uh, and the whole Bay Area where you've got a huge a uh, problem with homelessness and a lack of affordable housing. People are living in U-Hauls. They're not just packing up their uh, U-Hauls to move to better places. They're living in the back of trucks because they can't afford an apartment somewhere. Uh, and the uh, deep blue policies refuse to allow uh, new building. So the uh, real estate market is incredibly skewed. I mean, you know, we can talk about that. But I think we should also talk about why it's important to save these small towns and why it's important to save uh, these struggling communities. Because not everybody wants to live in New York City. Not everybody wants to live inside the Beltway. Not everybody wants to move to Austin, Texas, although it's a great place. And by the way, the more people move to these places, the less great these places become to a lot of people. And instead, they dream of being able to move to a town like Farmville. They want to be able to move to a town like Roanoke because they want those communities to be viable. And so it seems to me that rather than complain about the people who live in these communities, maybe the answer, maybe the challenge for conservatism right now is to describe how these places, which have been so important to conservatism, the small community where family, where institutions are manageable, where we can have a direct uh, impact and influence on those uh, local institutions, as opposed to the big nameless cities. Yeah, these places and these spaces are supposed to be important to conservatism. And so maybe the challenge is to, instead of complaining about the people who live there, try to figure out a way to make them viable again. And I guess I, that, that's what disappointed me about Kevin's piece, because he is a smart guy. Um, and I don't like to see conservatism throw any group of Americans away. I think that, uh, uh, you know, your guiding political philosophy, generally speaking, uh, should work no matter the population density or your zip code. But that's just me. At the same time, I, I do understand that, you know, time marches on, uh, that uh, things change, that uh, it doesn't take 5,000 people to manufacture nylon anymore. I, I understand this. And as a matter of fact, um, another National Review writer, uh, one of my favorite writers of all time, wrote about this, uh, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, 
And, you know, Whitaker Chambers, if you've not read his book, Witness, I know I've talked about this on the podcast before. Go read Witness. It is truly one of the best works of American literature uh, written in the 20th century, regardless of, you know, the, the ideology behind it. But if you are a conservative, if you are a conservatarian, if you are a man of the right or a woman of the right, as uh, well, Whitaker Chambers described himself as a man of the right, not a woman of the right. But uh, if, if, that's how he described himself, not as a conservative, but a man of the right. If you are of that leaning, uh, Witness is one of those indispensable books. Like it's 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 you know top five books that uh, uh, you you want to read, and could have a I, it, to me again it just had a, a huge impact on me. Anyway, uh, after Witness came out, he uh, started writing for National Review, had a series of heart attacks uh, that uh, limited his mobility. But he also lived on a farm in Maryland. He had moved there in the '30s after he broke with communism. And after he died, uh, his wife collected uh, some of his uh, letters and uh, some of his writings and, and published it uh, in a book called Cold Friday. And there are a couple of parts in the book that um, really, I think, kind of speak to what Kevin Williamson was writing about. And I want to quote if I can. Uh He's writing about being a farmer in Maryland again in the late 1950s. And watching how the growth of government uh, has changed agriculture and the growth of technology as well, the advances in technology, he says, uh, I loathe rural socialism. And that's why I stopped growing wheat several years ago and corn last year. I'm trying to shape a workable farm economy that will slip around these socialist shackles, coexist within, as John Chamberlain once said, the interstices But I'm not a farmer in the general sense, he says. I am the exception, not the rule. I prove nothing unless the possibility that a few men can live amiably still by bypassing, not by kicking against the pricks. I have by no means proved it as yet. Meanwhile, let the government men measure my fields and yield to their heart's content. The very sight of them enrages me. I usually begin by treating them with formal courtesy and end by telling them to their faces that they are useless parasites. But at worst, when they stay only for a few hours like a flock of crows and... As I do not hunt crows when I am too busy with other things, through their, though their chatter and marauding exasperates me. So I do not run the agriculture inspectors away, as some of my neighbors have done. For I know that the crows will be there so long as the corn attracts and feeds them. And unlike the crows, the inspectors are better armed than I am. I will simply not plant corn, though I have no illusion that this is more than a postponement. If it isn't corn, it will be some other crop. He says, as you know, most factory workers are farmers' monkeys. Moreover, they flocked to the factories in the first place because even the industrial horrors of the 19th century seemed preferable to more than 10 hours of haying in a shriveling sun or cows going bad with garget. I worked the hayload last night against the coming rain by headlights long after dark. I know the farmer's case for the machine and for the factory. And I know, like the cut of hay bale cords in my hands, that a conservatism that cannot find room in its folds for these actualities is a conservatism doomed to petulance and dwindling. First unreality and then defeat. Let the conservative fill barley sacks behind the moving combine for even eight hours in a really good sun, and then load them, 100, 150-pound bags, until midnight, and he will learn more about the realities of rural socialism and about the realities of conservatism than he could ever glean from the late, ever-to-be-honored Robert Taft. I know this is a long section, but bear with me for just one more paragraph. 
He said, naturally, it's not so simple as I've sketched it above. I know, too, that the 40-horsepower tractor is only one turn on the road that leads to the H-bomb and beyond. If I were a younger man, if there were any frontiers left, I should flee to some frontier, because when the house is afire, you leave by whatever hole is open for whatever area is freest of fire. Since there are no regional frontiers, I've been seeking the next best thing. The frontiers within. But I have no notion that my antics have a validity for anybody else except a handful of similar escapists. Escapism is laudable. Perhaps the only truly honorable course for humane men. But only for them. Those who remain in the world, if they will not surrender on its terms, must maneuver within its terms. That is what conservatives must decide. How much to give in order to survive at all. How much to give in order not to give up the basic principles. And of course, that results in a dance along a precipice. Many will drop over, and always the cliff dancers will hear the screaming curses of those who fall, or be dumbed by the sullen silence of those nobler souls, perhaps, who will not join the dance. So, Whitaker Chambers, a guy who, you know, again, had moved to a farm, uh, had uh, lived there for decades, knew that what he was doing wasn't necessarily uh, something that the masses of people could do. Uh, he was aware that, you know, with changing technology, that made uh, agriculture become a, a more expensive proposition, not a more affordable proposition for Americans. Uh, you had to invest, you know, now it's hundreds of thousands of dollars in combines and uh, material if you want to do a large scale farming. And, and Kevin Williamson is right. Uh, small scale farming is uh, it's very difficult to make a, a living um, for every Joel Salatin out there at Bollyface Farms who's getting it done and doing an amazing job at it. Uh, there are several dozen small farmers who are not able to get it done. But still, Whitaker Chambers thought that these spaces were important. Um, whether you call it escapism or not, uh, he, he thought that it was valuable and he wrote about this elsewhere in Cold Friday, about why this is valuable, about why you just don't throw these places away and these communities away, and you don't just give up uh, on the small towns and these small spaces and, and everybody move to a megalopolis out there. Why you fight to keep these spaces. And it was about his kids. I want to read another passage if I can hold your attention here for just a couple more minutes. He said, I had with many misgivings, I shall come back to that later on, given life to two children. I meant in the simplest terms to take those children to the soil as one of the few sound realities left in life that they might grow into and grow out of, in which whatever forays into the world they might later make, they would never finally leave. I meant to found a line rooted in a particular spot of the earth, which they would make their own by that effort of their lives that they put into it by working it, and which their children's children would inherit by right of that energy of their lives which they had sown like seed in it. In the 20th century, no purpose could well have been more deliberately unrealistic. Every energy which my intelligence told me was shaping the future was against it. No man could have been more conscious of that reality. This was all that there was to give, the ground beneath their feet. 
I meant to give it to them not only against the forces of open revolution, but also against that suffocating materialism, which more than want or hunger recruits the forces of revolution in the West. For some, must at last have eyes to see the plain fact that the revolutionary proletariat in the West, including Russia, is not and ever has been a factory proletariat. The forces of revolution in the West are an intellectual proletariat, disinherited, not in this world's goods, with which they are often incongruously replete, but disinherited in the spirit. The revolt of the intellectuals of the West, almost without exception, begins, no matter how it ends, as the frantic threshing of those drowning in the materialism of the West, a convulsive struggle against the death of the spirit. This is the answer to the fatuous, reiterated question of why men like Arthur Kessler or Whitaker Chambers became communists. For the differences in background which the shallow world magnifies are trifling compared to that convulsion of the drowning spirit which carried us, and men like us, each in his own individual way, with his own individual rationalization, into communism, in which makes a second death for those who, recognizing at last that communism is itself evil, must burst from that second drowning back into a West which has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Hateful home truths, he says. For they invite the West to stop looking at communism and look into itself. Communism is never stronger than the failure of all other faiths. Men are by nature conservative. They become revolutionists only by despair. Communism did not attract. It repelled me. I became a communist to escape the dying West. All of this I wrote, he said in witness. The inner meaning was lost in the coding of words. I am a man old now in experience and getting ready to die. I have no time left to coat the harsh truth. I have no other business on earth than to speak the truth as plainly as it seems to me. In the end, God commands nothing less for any man, as we know and seldom know anything more surely, for we seldom feel closer to God than when we speak truth at whatever cost. He said, So I meant this farm to be a base for my children, not only against the forces of revolution in the world, but also against the climate of materialism which breeds revolutionists. Nothing could have been more clearly foredoomed. Intelligence and experience alike told me this beyond question, and if I had acted only on their sense, I should not have acted at all. But it is my conviction, based on a reading of man's upward climb from shambling apehood, that man's progress is always a progress of the spirit, and that spirit makes its irrational forward lurch precisely at the moment it acts in defiance of a prevailing reality. The mind may not reject the knowledge of reality, the more coldly it weighs it, the better. But the spirit may defy reality in the name of something higher. Cold Friday was therefore for me, Cold Friday was the name of a, a pasture on his farm. Cold Friday, he said, was therefore for me an act of hope and faith. The point of importance was not the failure. The important point was to act. The clinching of the will set in defiance of failure, because what is good and right remains good and right, though buried in disaster and by centuries. And that's why these spaces matter. Because they have always mattered. And frankly, you know, we live in a time in which technology has made it easier than ever for us to communicate with uh, one another, no matter where we live, no matter where we are on the globe. Uh, it, it seems to me that these, you know, small towns um, have more promise and potential n now than they did uh, perhaps at any point in the last 50 years when these manufacturing jobs started going away. I just think that these, again, these small towns, these uh, communities, these manufacturing cities and the rural spaces, 
they do still hold value, not just for conservatives, but uh, for the country. And I, 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 I don't like to see um, voices, educated, smart, intelligent, uh, and, and very you know capable uh, voices uh, in the conservative movement uh, disregard the uh, people who live there and the places themselves. All right, we're going to take a, a quick time out. When we come back, we've got your thoughts here on this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. So stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 